Welcome to the Words That Minister Grace podcast. In this podcast, we read excerpts from books that the host finds edifying. Expect to hear from authors such as Matthew Henry, John Calvin, and J.C. Ryle. We take our name from Ephesians 4.29, where Paul exhorts us that our speech should build up each other, or as the King James says, minister grace. I am your host, the fake King Hesse. In this episode, we complete our reading of Calvin's Institutes Book 2, Chapter 8. We'll be reading section 49 through 59, reading Calvin's discussion on the Tenth Commandment and his summary of the law. The Tenth Commandment Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. 49. The purport is, since the Lord would have the whole soul pervaded with love, any feeling of an adverse nature must be banished from our minds. The sum, therefore, will be that no thought be permitted to insinuate itself into our minds, and inhale them with a noxious concupiscence tending to our neighbor's loss. To this corresponds the contrary precept, that everything which we conceive, deliberate, will, or design, be conjoined with the good and advantage of our neighbor. But here it seems we are met with a great and perplexing difficulty. For if it was correctly said above that under the words adultery and theft, lust and attention to injure and deceive are prohibited, it may seem superfluous afterwards to employ a separate commandment to prohibit a covetous desire of our neighbor's goods. The difficulty will easily be removed by distinguishing between design and covetousness. Design, such as we have spoken of in the previous commandments, is a deliberate consent of the will after passion has taken possession of the mind. Covetousness may exist without such deliberation and assent when the mind is only stimulated and tickled by vain and perverse objects. As therefore the Lord previously ordered that charity should regulate our wishes, studies, and actions, so he now orders us to regulate the thoughts of the mind in the same way, that none of them may be depraved and distorted so as to give the mind a contrary bent. Having forbidden us to turn and incline our mind to wrath, hatred, adultery, theft, and falsehood, he now forbids us to give our thoughts the same direction. 50. Nor is such rectitude demanded without reason, for who can deny the propriety of occupying all the powers of the mind with charity? If it ceases to have charity for its aim, who can question that it is diseased? How comes it that so many desires of a nature hurtful to your brother enter your mind, just because, disregarding him, you think only of yourself. Were your mind wholly imbued with charity, no portion of it would remain for the entrance of such thoughts. In so far, therefore, as the mind is devoid of charity, it must be under the influence of concupiscence. Someone will object that those fancies which casually rise up in the mind and forthwith vanish away cannot properly be condemned as concupiscence, which have their seat in the heart. I answer, that the question here relates to a description of fancies, which while they present themselves to our thoughts, at the same time impress and stimulate the mind with greed, since the mind never thinks of making some choice, but the heart is excited and tends towards it. God therefore commands a strong and ardent affection, an affection not to be impeded by any portion, however minute of concupiscence. He requires a mind so admirably arranged as not to be prompted in the slightest degree contrary to the law of love. Lest you should imagine that this view is not supported by any grave authority, I may mention that it was first suggested to me by Augustine. But although it was the intention of God to prohibit every kind of perverse desire, 
He, by way of example, sets before us those objects which are generally regarded as most attractive, thus leaving no room for greed of any kind, but the interdiction of those things in which it especially delights and loves to revel. Such, then, is the second table of the law, in which we are sufficiently instructed in the duties which we owe to man for the sake of God, on a consideration of whose nature the whole system of love is founded. It were vain, therefore, to teach the various duties taught in this table about placing your instructions on the fear and reverence to God as their proper foundation. I need not tell the considerate reader that those who make two precepts out of the prohibition of covetousness perversely split one thing into two. There is nothing in the repetition of the words, Thou shalt not covet. The houses being first put down, its different parts are afterwards enumerated, beginning with the wife, and hence it is clear that the whole ought to be read consecutively, as is properly done by the Jews. The sum of the commandment, therefore, is that whatever each individual possesses remains entirely insecure, not only from injury or the wish to injure, but also from the slightest feeling of covetousness which can spring up in the mind. 51. It will not now be difficult to ascertain the general end contemplated by the whole law, viz. the fulfillment of righteousness, that man may form his life on the model of the divine purity. For therein God has so delineated his own character, that any one exhibiting in action what is commanded, would in some measure exhibit a living image of God. Wherefore Moses, when he wished to fix a summary of the whole in the memory of the Israelites, thus addressed them, And now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good? Deuteronomy ten twelve thirteen. And he ceased not to reiterate the same thing whenever he had occasion to mention the end of the law. To this the doctrine of the law pays so much regard, that it connects man by holiness of life with his God, and, as Moses elsewhere expresses it, Deuteronomy 6, 5, 11, 13, and makes him cleave to him. Moreover, this holiness of life is comprehended under the two heads above mentioned. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God of all thy heart, and of all thy soul, and of all thy mind, and of all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. First, our mind must be completely filled with love to God, and then this love must forthwith flow out towards our neighbor. This the apostle shows when he says, the end of the commandment is charity out of pure heart and a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. 1 Timothy 1.5 You see that conscience and faith unfeigned are placed at the head, in other words, true piety, and that from this charity is derived. It is a mistake, then, to suppose that merely the rudiments and first principles of righteousness are delivered in the law to form, as it were, a kind of introduction to good works, and not to guide to the perfect performance of them. For complete perfection, nothing more can be required than is expressed in these passages of Moses and Paul. How far, pray, would he wish to go, who is not satisfied with the instruction which directs man to the fear of God, to spiritual worship, practical obedience, in fine, purity of conscience, faith unfeigned, and charity? This confirms that interpretation of the law which searches out and finds in its precepts all the duties of piety and charity, those who merely search for dry and meager elements, as if taught the will of God only by halves, by no means understand this end, the apostle being witness. 52. As, in giving a summary of the law, Christ and the apostles sometimes omit the first table, 
very many fall into the mistake of supposing that their words apply to both tables. In Matthew, Christ calls judgment, mercy, and faith the weightier matters of the law. I think it is clear that by faith is here meant veracity towards men. But in order to extend the words to the whole law, some take it for piety towards God. This is surely to no purpose. For Christ is speaking of those works by which a man ought to approve himself as just. If we attend to this, we will cease to wonder why, elsewhere, when asked by the young man, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He simply answers that he must keep the commandments. Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Matthew nineteen sixteen eighteen. For the obedience of the first table consisted almost entirely either in the eternal affection of the heart or in ceremonies. The affection of the heart was not visible, and hypocrites were diligent in the observation of ceremonies, but the works of charity were of such a nature as to be a solid attestation of righteousness. The same thing here occurs so frequently in the prophets that it must be familiar to everyone who has any tolerable acquaintance with them. For, almost on every occasion, when they exhort men to repentance, omitting the first table, they insist on faith, judgment, mercy, and equity. Nor do they in this way omit the fear of God. They only require a serious proof of it from its signs. It is well known, indeed, that when they treat of the law, they generally insist on the second table, because therein the cultivation of righteousness and integrity is best manifested. There is no occasion to quote passages. Everyone can easily for himself perceive the truth of my observation. 53. Is it then true, you will ask, that it is a more complete summary of righteousness to live innocently with men than piously towards God? By no means, but because no man, as a matter of course, observes charity in all respects, unless he seriously fear God, such observance is a proof of piety also. To this we may add, that the Lord well knowing that none of our good deeds can reach him, as the psalmist declares, Psalm 16.2, does not demand from us duties towards himself, but exercises us in good works towards our neighbor. Hence the apostle, not without cause, makes the whole perfection of the saints to consist in charity. Ephesians 3.19, Colossians 3.14 And in another passage he not improperly calls it the fulfilling of the law, adding that he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. Romans 13.18 And again, all the law is fulfilled in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Galatians 5.14 For this is the very thing which Christ himself teaches when he says, All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7.12 It is certain that in the law and the prophets, faith and whatever pertains to the due worship of God holds the first place, and that to this charity is made subordinate. But our Lord means that, in the law, the observance of justice and equity towards men is prescribed as the means which we are to employ in testifying a pious fear of God, if we truly possess it. 54. Let us therefore hold that our life will be framed in best accordance with the will of God and the requirements of his law, when it is in every respect most advantageous to our brethren. But in the whole law there is not one syllable which lays down a rule as to what man is to do or avoid for the advantage of his own carnal nature. And indeed, since men are generally prone to excessive self-love, 
which they always retain, how great soever their departure from truth may be, there was no need of a law to inflame a love already existing in excess. Hence it is perfectly plain that the observance of the commandments consists not in the love of ourselves, but in the love of God and our neighbor, and that he leads the best and holiest life who is as little as maybe studies and lives for himself, and that none lives worse and more unrighteously than he who studies and lives only for himself, and seeks and thinks only of his own. Nay, the better to express how strongly we should be inclined to love our neighbor, the Lord has made self-love as it were the standard there being no feeling in our nature of greater strength and vehemence. The force of the expression ought to be carefully weighed, for he does not, as some sophists have stupidly dreamed, assign the first place to self-love and the second to charity. He rather transfers to others the love which we naturally feel for ourselves. Hence the apostle declares that charity seeketh not her own, 1 Corinthians 13.5. Nor is the argument worth a straw, that the thing regulated must always be inferior to the rule. The Lord did not make self-love the rule, as if love towards others was subordinate to it, but whereas, through natural wickedness, the feeling of love usually rests on ourselves, he shows that it ought to diffuse itself in another direction, that we should be prepared to do good to our neighbors with no less eagerness, zeal, and care than to ourselves. 55. Our Savior having shown, in the parable of the Samaritan, Luke 10.36, that the term neighbor comprehends the most remote stranger, there is no reason for limiting the precept of love to our own connections. I deny not that the closer the relation, the more frequent our offices of kindness should be, for the condition of humanity requires that there be more duties in common between those who are more nearly connected by the ties of relationship, our friendship, our neighborhood. And this is done without any offense to God, by whose providence we are in a manner impelled to do it. But I say that the whole human race, without exception, are to be embraced with one feeling of charity, that here there is no distinction of Greek or barbarian, worthy or unworthy, friend or foe, since all are to be viewed not in themselves, but in God. If we turn aside from this view, there is no wonder that we entangle ourselves in error. Wherefore, if we would hold the true course in love, our first step must be to turn our eyes not to man, the sight of whom might oftener produce hatred than love, but to God who requires that the love which we bear to him be diffused among all mankind, so that our fundamental principle must ever be, let a man be what he may be, he still to be loved because God is loved. 56. Wherefore, nothing could be more contagious than the ignorance or wickedness of the schoolmen in converting the precepts respecting revenge and the love of enemies, precepts which had formerly been delivered to all the Jews and were then delivered universally to all Christians in the councils which it was free to obey or disobey, confining the necessary observance of them to the monks, who were made more righteous than ordinary Christians, by the simple circumstance of voluntarily binding themselves to obey councils. The reason they assign for not receiving them as law is that they seem too heavy and burdensome, especially to Christians who are under the law of grace. Have they indeed the courage to remodel the eternal law of God concerning the love of our neighbor? Is there a page of the law in which any such distinctions exist? Or rather, do we not meet in every page with commands which in the strictest terms require us to love our enemies? What is meant by commanding us to feed our enemy if he is hungry, to bring back his ox or his ass if he meet it going astray, or help it up if we see it lying under its burden? Proverbs 25.21, Exodus 23.4 Shall we show kindness to cattle for man's sake and have no feeling of goodwill to himself? What? 
Is not the word of the Lord eternally true? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32.35 This is elsewhere more explicitly stated, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Leviticus 19.18 Let them either erase these passages from the law, or let them acknowledge the Lord as a lawgiver, not falsely feign him to be merely a counselor. 57. And what, pray, is meant by the following passage, which they have dared to insult with this absurd gloss? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, 44, 45. Who does not here concur in the reasoning of Christophem that the nature of the motive makes it plain that these are not exhortations but precepts? What is left to us if we are excluded from the number of the children of God? According to the schoolmen, monks alone will be the children of our Father in heaven. Monks alone will dare to invoke God as their Father. And in the meantime, how will it fare with the church? By the same rule shall be confined to heathens and publicans. For our Savior says, If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? It will truly be well with us if we are left only the name of Christians, while we are deprived of the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. Nor is the argument of Augustine less forceful. When the Lord forbids adultery, he forbids it in regard to the wife of a foe, not less the wife of a friend. When he forbids theft, he does not allow stealing of any description, whether from a friend or an enemy. Now these two commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, Paul brings under the rule of love. Nay, he says that they are briefly comprehended in this saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Romans 13.9 Therefore, Paul must either be a false interpreter of the law, or we must necessarily conclude that under this precept we are bound to love our enemies just as our friends. Those then show themselves to be in truth the children of Satan, who thus licentiously shake off a yoke common to the children of God. It may be doubted whether in promulgating this dogma, they have displayed greater stupidity or impudence. There is no ancient writer who does not hold it as certain that these are pure precepts. It is not even doubted that in the age of Gregory, as is plain from his decided assertions, for he holds it to be incontrovertible that they are precepts. And how stupidly they argue. The burdens, say they, were too difficult for Christians to hear, as if anything could be imagined more difficult than to love the Lord with all the heart, soul, and strength. Compared with this law, there is none which may not seem easy, whether it be to love our enemy or to banish every feeling of revenge from our minds. To our weakness, indeed, everything, even to the minutest tittle of the law, is arduous and difficult. In the Lord we have strength. It is his to give what he orders and to order what he wills. That Christians are under the law of grace means not that they are to wander unrestrained without law, but that they are engrafted into Christ by whose grace they are freed from the curse of the law, and by whose spirit they have the law written in their hearts. This grace Paul has termed, but not in the proper sense of the term, a law alluding to the law of God, with which he was contrasting it. The schoolmen, laying hold of the term law, make it the groundwork of their vain speculations. 58. The same must be said of their application of the term venial sin, both to the hidden impiety which violates the first table, and the direct transgression of the last commandment of the second table. They define venial sin to be desire unaccompanied with deliberate assent, and not remaining long in the heart. 
but I maintain that it cannot even enter the heart unless through a want of those things which are required in the law. We are forbidden to have strange gods. When the mind, under the influence of distrust, looks elsewhere or is seized with some sudden desire to transfer its blessedness to some other quarter, whence are these movements, however fading, but just because there is some empty corner in the soul to receive such temptations? And, not to lengthen out the discussion, there is a precept to love God with a whole heart and mind and soul. And therefore, if all the powers of the soul are not directed to the love of God, there is a departure from the obedience of the law. Because those internal enemies which rise up against the dominion of God and counterman his edicts prove that his throne is not well established in our consciences. It has been shown that the last commandment goes to this extent. Has some undue longing sprung up in our mind? that we are chargeable of covetousness, and stand convicted as transgressors of the law. For the law forbids us not only to meditate and plan our neighbor's loss, but to be stimulated and inflamed with covetousness. But every transgression of the law lays us under the curse, and therefore even the slightest desires cannot be exempted from the fatal sentence. In weighing our sin, says Augustine, let us not use a deceitful balance, weighing at our own discretion what we will and how we will, calling this heavy and that light but let us use the divine balance of the Holy Scriptures, as taken from the treasury of the Lord, and by it weigh every offense. Nay, not weigh, but rather recognize what has already been weighed by our Lord. And what saith the Scripture? Certainly when Paul says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, he shows that he knew nothing of this vile distinction. As we are but too prone to hypocrisy, there was very little occasion for the sop to soothe our torpid consciences. 59. I wish they would consider what our Savior meant when he said, Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.19 Are they not of this number when they presume to extenuate the transgression of the law as if it were unworthy of death? The proper course had been to consider not simply what is commanded, but who is it that commands, because every least transgression of his law derogates from his authority. Do they count it a small matter to insult the majesty of God in any one respect? Again, since God has explained his will in the law, everything contrary to the law is displeasing to him. Will they feign that the wrath of God is so disarmed that the punishment of death will not forthwith follow upon it? He has declared plainly, if they could be induced to listen to his voice, instead of darkening his clear truth by their insepid subtleties. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.20. Again, in the passage lately quoted, the wages of sin is death. What these men acknowledge to be sin because they are unable to deny it, they contend is not mortal. Having already indulged this madness too long, let them learn to repent. Or, if they persist in their infatuation, taking no further notice of them, let the children of God remember that all sin is mortal, because it is a rebellion against the will of God, and necessarily provokes his anger. And because it is a violation of the law, against every violation of which, without exception, the judgment of God has been pronounced. The faults of the saints are indeed venial, not, however, in their own nature, but because, through the mercy of God, they obtain pardon. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find contact information and a link to the text from today. Remember to heed Paul when he says in Ephesians 4.29 to Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers.